1: I was badly addicted to heroin, and then you stay up two, three, four days hustling, ripping, running, stealing, all types of different crimes are going on because you need money. I don't consider myself a prostitute, that I was a prostitute, but if that was the last resort of how I had to get money, if I was sick, then it didn't matter, I was okay with that.
2: The way that Angelia Bianca describes this time in her life is that the music was gone there was no music in her life. And in its place was 20 years of addiction, incarceration, loneliness, darkness, and despair.
1: I remember my day to day towards like the last say 20 years where hour by hour. And I don't know how many people know what it's like to live hour by hour, but I do.
2: So how does a former Chicago gang member Who's overdosed over a hundred times? Turn it all around and become a life-saving community hero. Today, a story of second chances after decades of heartbreaking struggle. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. Angelia Bianca, or Bianca as everyone calls her, grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. She started popping morphine pills at the age of nine as she was living a dual life, excelling as a student athlete while continuing to get high. By the time she was 17, she was a full-blown heroin addict. Bianca joined a gang called the Latin Kings to try and fill the void and find community. She became a mom to five kids who were each taken away during the 12 years she was in and out of prison. Bianca spent 20 years in traumatized survival mode. She slept in cockroach-infested, abandoned buildings. She felt there was more to life, but didn't know how to get there. In a remarkable turn of events, Bianca received her college degree and is now a speaker, author, activist, and violence interrupter. She has dedicated her second chance in life to helping at-risk youth make better choices. And it all happened as a result of a question she asked herself in prison. Who will be there next to me when I die? Here's my interview with Bianca. Bianca, welcome to All the Wiser.
1: Thank you. I am happy to be here.
2: I want to start with your childhood and sort of asking you, we have so much to talk about today, but really where your story begins. I know you have said you grew up in a close-knit, loving Italian family that spoiled you, is, yeah. uh, is how you've described it. But tell me a little bit about your childhood and where your story begins.
1: So I was born in 1958. I have a sister named Christina. We call her Cricky. And then at five years old, my mother left in the middle of the night. And I remember seeing her leaving. It woke me up. And I went to the dorm. And now my sister at that time was one years old, still like in a crib. I was five. And it's like I have a photographic memory. So it's like a never fading photo in my brain. As I'm telling you this, I'm looking at it in my head, and um, I, I heard a noise, and I went into the kitchen, and by the back door, and there was my mother, so beautiful, with a tweed coat on, with fur around the neck, and her, you know, she was a very nice dresser and a beautiful woman, and two suitcases, and I was grabbing her coat, because I had a horrifying feeling, and I was like, Mommy, Mommy, don't go. Please don't go, Mommy, and she was like, No. Angela, I'm going to get milk for your breakfast in the morning. And I was crying and I was going, Mommy, mommy, please don't go. And she reached down and took my little hand and kind of like pulled it from her coat and said, I promise I will call you in the morning on your princess phone because I was so spoiled. And um tell you, Come on, Princess Angelia, your breakfast is ready. So I didn't believe her, but she left out the door. And I remember laying in my bed and then staring at the stars. Somehow stars always gave me comfort and they still do. And she did not come back.
2: And I know in addition to your mother leaving and never coming back, you would be essentially raised by your grandmother, you know, that you were sexually abused at a young age and and that certainly wasn't treated or addressed and had had an impact on your mental health. So all of these things are sort of, Accruing, But I know at the same time, and we can talk about this, that you were an athlete, a really smart girl. Right. And you didn't grow up around drugs, which you shared with me. But at nine was the first time that you used drugs. Can you explain Cut. to me what and why, what happened and, and why, looking back, do you think it happened?
1: I was like really competitive, I was in sports, I was swim champion. I competed in skating, volleyball, by fourth grade I was awarded two years in a row the presidential physical fitness award for youth and really smart in my classes and these really cool group of friends that were probably like juvenile delinquents that I can look at now but um so they were cool to me and I and I wanted to hang with them well I started hanging with this group of friends and it was fun and you know we I mean I don't know we were like you know just it was like fun to me right so at the age of 9 my friend keith whose father was dying of cancer, he had all this medication. He was like bedridden. And, and obviously, we didn't know what the medication was, but we were like, hey, let's try taking some of your dad's medicine. And now I know it was morphine. So we were constantly stealing the father's sleeping pills, which later I found out were like Secanol and Tuanol, Barbiturates, and morphine and Dilaudid. And we were constantly popping them and getting high.
2: And I know when we talked earlier, you said it was this, I think you described it as, which I think most people can relate to sort of filling a hole or a void, right? Something was missing and you're just seeking. Right, right. Which is crazy now, you know, just to think nine and and how young that is. I'm sure you now, when you see a nine-year-old. I see
1: my grandchildren. Are you kidding? I'm like, oh my God.
2: Yeah. It sounds like you have these dual lives a little bit, right? The, the very early drug use, but then some sense of real normalcy with athleticism and all these things. But the drug use really escalates. And you drop out of school your sophomore year. And eventually, by the time you're 17, you are you're a heroin addict or addicted to heroin, I should say. Yes. When was the first time you used heroin? And what do you remember about that? experience?
1: Well, I remember, like you said, I always felt like I had to fill a void and I really wasn't sure what that void was, but I was willing to try anything or do anything. And I happened to visit my best friend, Joanne. We went to visit her sister, MJ, who I talk about in my book, in Arizona and Tucson. And unbeknownst to me, she was a heroin addict. And she was like, we were like 17 and she was 25. I used to see like red flags of her going down the street and coming back and being locked in the bathroom. And I kind of wanted to know what was going on there. And anyway, not to dwell too much on it. I eventually found out it was heroin and I begged her to let me try it. And she told me no. I don't want you to try it because you like barbiturates and downers too much you will become a heroin addict and end up a hooker on Cicero Avenue and how profound that that was that she predicted that so I she wouldn't let me try it she did everything in her power to keep me from it but she let me try some she shot me up I did not know that you could snort it I hate needles but I did it. And um, it kind of made me feel sick, but then it gave me a feeling, I, like I felt sick initially and threw up, but then it gave me like a feeling of euphoria, like really a, almost like a dream state, but you're awake. And I instantly loved it. And I then struggled with it for 36 years.
2: Wow. And eventually you joined a gang How did that happen? I mean, how does, yeah, I think I'm fascinated about how that happens, how you build the relationships with the gang members, how you decide to be a part of it. So if you can tell me about that time in your life.
1: I think I was always searching for something, something to belong to, something that I don't know, you know? I mean, I think that's the case with everyone that makes these bad choices. They just want to belong to something, right? And I befriended them all and, you know, kind of like they knew I, I was trustworthy. I was buying weight from them, meaning, you know, big quantities because I was taking them back and selling and, and also doing. And I just started hanging there all the time and, and they accepted me like for who I was. Nobody judged me. And, I wanted to be them, right? So I wanted to join. And so I joined the Latin Kings. I was a Latin queen. So there's there's two ways to get to get initiated into the Latin Kings. You can walk the line or on the wall. Walking the line means that there are queen sisters lined up on both sides and you walk through and they're punching as hard as they can as you pass them. Or the wall, you stand up against a wall for three minutes while two queen sisters punch you and kind of beat the hell out of you, right? And you can't fight back. And then at the end of it, um, I had to like pull my shirt down, over my shoulders were really bruised to just show that I was bruised. And then it was like a loving affair where everybody hugs you and you're now, initiated in, and you are in a family. So maybe I was looking for a family.
2: So you're initiated into the gang, and now this becomes your life. What is the day-to-day life of being a female gang member look like?
1: Yeah. So first of all, keep in mind that I had a child when I was 19, when I was in Arizona. His father was killed when he was 2 years old but often i did have my son with me during these gang periods and drug periods and so my son he saw more as a child than any human being should see in their entire life right so as much as i loved him i just i mean i always say when a woman is starts getting high continuously from 9 years old Motherhood's not going to look too good for that person. No matter how much you love a child, you just don't know how to be a mother. So when I was in the gang, you know, I would drive to the hood and it consisted of just either kicking it, hanging out, but mostly a lot of um, bagging of dope and picking up quantities and cutting it and at the safe house and counting money and picking up money and dropping off drugs to the people who are selling them on the streets and um, I was involved in all of that and I always had my son we'd be in the kitchen bagging and grinding grinding the uh, heroin and the coffee grinders and then you know having masks on and like you see in the movies back in the old days and then bagging and my poor little cute little son would be in the front room with McDonald's or playing with some little toys. And he'd be happy as could be. And I thought everything was fine. And I know that makes me sound terrible.
2: So you mentioned your son early on and living this this sort of gang and drug-fueled life. I know you would go on to have other kids. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, who the men are in your life and how many kids you, you ended up having?
1: My second child was born because I was in jail. I was in Cook County Jail, and then I did get a prison sentence, went to prison, and in the county met this correctional officer, and we would have sex. He used to come to the prison and visit me as well once I went to uh, Dwight Prison, and because he was an officer, he was able to pay off one of the prison guards to look the other way. So I can go in the bathroom and he can come in the same bathroom and then we could have sex.
2: So five kids with with four different men. And I want to talk about your time in prison because I know that was 12 years. I've seen you or read that you described it as a life of addiction, incarceration, loneliness, darkness, and despair. And that was really your day-to-day life as you're living homeless and addicted in and out of prison on Chicago's... West Side. I'm just curious about what is a day in that life look like? Where are you sleeping? Where are you living? Sex, money, drugs, what is the day to day life at that juncture for you?
1: So in the beginning For many years, I was having a lot of fun. I loved that life. I loved hanging out. I loved ripping and running and hustling and, you know, feeling like some importance or something. And I liked the thrill and the adrenaline. And I mean, even police chases, I'd be like, when we'd get away, I'd be like, oh my God, let's do it again, you know? So, like, I was so lost, right? Well, then the day comes where as time goes by and you lose more and more, and just like the Bob Dylan's song, Like a Rolling Stone, when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose, right? Music is very, very important in my life since I was a child. Since as long as I can remember. And then I remember the music was gone. Like there was no music in my life. And I remember my day to day towards like the last, say, 20 years were hour by hour. And I don't know how many people know what it's like to live hour by hour, but I do. And that looks like, first of all, I was badly addicted to heroin. And then you stay up two, three, four days hustling, ripping, running, stealing, all types of different crimes are going on because you need money. I don't consider myself a prostitute, that I was a prostitute. But um, if that was the last resort of how I had to get money, if I was sick, then it didn't matter. I, I I, I was okay with that, right? And the 12 years I did were over a span of seven different prison terms, right? So, but a total of 12 years. And, but on the street, the majority of the time, I slept and lived in abandoned buildings. And we just make camp like squatters, right? And um, clean out a room. And then there was always the threat of, you know, the door getting banged in, knocked down by police, and you're going to jail for trespassing. And then you get there and then I'd have a warrant or because my record was so bad, I would spend 30 days in the county sobering up a little bit. And then remembering my family and then remembering my children, what a horrible mother I am that I gave my children up and remember my grandmother and how much she loved me and how much I loved her. And it was just too much for me to bear, the guilt. And I would try to stay as high as I possibly could. Now I have never been suicidal, I would never harm myself, but um, I did not care if I lived or died. And after being on a binge, and I remember being up for 10 days once, I was so delirious, uh, literally almost hallucinating and um, you know, constantly getting high, getting high. And then you're dehydrated too. I, people that I know died from that. It's a horrifying feeling that you know you have to survive. You have to survive. And it was a survival mode and probably like traumatizing survival mode for 20 years that I lived.
2: And, you know, I've heard you say that, you know, you mentioned the abandoned buildings that you would sleep with tissues in your ear. Yes. So the cockroaches wouldn't crawl in. Yes. You also told me when we spoke that you have OD'd probably over a hundred times. Yeah. So you really were, I mean, the the, the life is, is unfathomable, I'm sure even to you looking back. Oh, Yeah. But you shared something interesting that still, you know, you had talked about when you were younger, the piece of you that this very bright, articulate, curious piece of you, and that sometimes you would be sneaking away to the library to read books, even during this period, which I thought was fascinating
1: yeah well I, I am a huge history buff I love science I love the stars and space and like those are really interesting things I, I've always loved that and i I'm not a big reader of anything f- fiction but i Spent most of my time in prison just going to the library in prison reading encyclopedias and learning. And like I find that fascinating. So when I was in this life and you get into the abandoned building, now you know there's rats and there's going to be, there's art, you're seeing roaches, but there's going to be more because there's no lights. And so the minute the sun goes down and you're going to be sleeping, I would try to get to as much drugs as I can, put tissue in my ears, because I knew the dimmer the lights got, the more roaches were gonna be crawling all over my body. And it just horrifies me now to look back that I was, you know, willing to be okay with that. Not not that I was okay with it, but I was willing to put myself through that. Like cause I I don't know, I feel like I felt there was more to life for me. I just didn't know how to get to it. I had made such bad choices and ruined everything, right? I ruined everything. And I thought that I could never change that. Like I dug too deep of a hole that there was no way for me to change it. And I had to accept this and try to survive. And wherever this road goes, I go with it. I just couldn't fathom that there would possibly be a way out for me.
2: And we talked obviously about prison. I think you said you collectively spent 12 years in prison over the course of seven arrests. What was life like in a female prison, a female, I guess, penitentiary? What was your life like at that time? And I also want you to share with me about your art at that time. But first, what does that look like to be incarcerated as a woman?
1: I've been arrested a million times but actually 125 times about 80 misdemeanors and the rest are felonies and seven different sentences sent me to the penitentiary but I was gang affiliated so that gave me an edge of a little additional respect and I knew how to get what I needed so you have to have a, an assignment in prison. And it's either you go to school or you work in the kitchen or you scrub toilets. And me not being a domestic type person, because my grandmother waited on me hand and foot, I knew nothing of this thing called, you know, domestic, clean the kitchen or bathroom. So um, I was like horrified when they gave me the assignment of cleaning the toilets. And it's like this row of like 20 toilets. And I was just like, oh my, there was like, funny traumatizing to me. So um, someone told me, hey, if you want to get out of having this for your assignment, just go to back to school. And I was like, and then that's all I have to do is go to school? And they're like, yeah. So I hurried up and signed up for school. I got my GED. Then I went to college while I was in prison. And so they kept me from cleaning toilets, thankfully. So as though it was not the most honorable way to want to get an education, at least I did And that helped me in my new life where I just graduated from Northeastern Illinois University with a bachelor degree in urban studies. So when I'd get out of school in the daytime, in the penitentiary and go back to my cell, I would paint. And I had other ways. I had like guys on the street that I knew that I could like call or write and say, hey, please, I need money. So people were sending me money even early on. So I would buy paints acrylic paints, you're only able to buy two brushes. And they're really, really bad brushes, like not for creative. I mean, horrible, right? So um, I couldn't be artistic with these two really rigid, stiff, short, or too long two of the same brushes. So I had to be creative. And I started thinking, I know, I'll make my own. So I would take pencils because I was in school, I could get pencils, which is contraband if you're not in school. And then I thought, I'll just use human hair. You are allowed to have a nail clipper And so I would cut little end of my hair. Now I have to get tape. That's contraband. So that's like a whole process of talking to this one, to this one, and making a trade. And this is like a big process to get tape. So then I'd cut like my own hair. And then I, it would take hours for me with the, with the nail clipper to like trim it, just sew so and tape it around a pencil. And then I thought, and my hair is kind of like wavy and a little bit curly. So it wasn't always good for like fine lines or different things like clouds. So I started looking at other, um, the other girls, right? And I'd be like, Oh my God, I love her hair. And it, Kind of became on the grounds of prison where, like, if I came to, if I would walk up to somebody and go, like, Oh my God, I love your hair. Like, most people would go, Bianca, don't even ask. You're not getting any of my hair. We already know you want paintbrushes, you know? And so, but many of the girls would say, I'd be like, I promise I'm cutting like a, a quarter of an inch off the back of your hair. Please, please. I need, I need, I need a straight line or I need, I need like more, you know, curly hair for clouds or, you know, so all my, um, I and I still have them to this day because when I got out the last time, I changed my life. So I, I literally still have all the the handmade paintbrushes and my paintings. I remember the feeling of I kind of felt like I made a life there in prison. I'm going to school. I'm getting educated. I've got my paints. You know, I have friends. I, I you know, that was kind of like you have to make your life because if you're in prison and all you think about are the streets, your time will go by like. A day will feel like a week, right? So I made that my family. And then right before like knowing, okay, today's Friday, you're leaving tomorrow. All right. And then me getting a sick feeling knowing what I'm going to return to. And I'm not going to have a bed to sleep in. And I'm not going to have food. And I won't have my paints because I'm going to probably lose anything I leave this prison with. And I would always go right back to the only thing I ever knew. And that was the projects on the streets. And I knew that. Like, I I think um, you have to laugh to stop from crying, right?
2: There would be a time where you left prison and walked out of prison and didn't return to that life. So I want to jump to that time in your life. And I know it involves a story about your father, which I want you to share. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned to me when we spoke on the phone that there was one person who really never gave up on you and and how pivotal she was and where you are today And you mentioned a counselor as well. So can you tell me about those two people? So
1: my father's sister, my Aunt Louise, and who, by the way, my middle name is Louise. I'm named after her and she's my godmother. So she... Wouldn't know where I was for like, you know, maybe a year or two years. And she would always be relentlessly calling all these jails pre computer and um, calling, you know, like trying to find out where I was. She kind of always seemed to know my aliases because we talked now and then, although I never saw her. But if I was on the street, I'd call her once in a while. So she would find me in somebody's prison and she would write. Now the first letter would be really bawling me out, you know? And and I knew I had that coming. But then after that, the letters would come every week and I'd write her every week. And she would inspire me and try to uplift me. And then a CO came to my room and said, uh, Bianca, the counselor needs to see you. And I was like oh, okay. And I thought, oh my God, it must be something about my father because they never call you to their office. So I get there. I believe her name is Bennett. And I wish I could find her because I want to thank her because one single sentence that she said to me changed my whole life. And um, I got into the office and the CO was standing there. When she told me to sit down, and she leaned over the desk and took my hand, and she said, "Bianca, I am so sorry to have to tell you this, but your aunt Louise called and said your father passed away a little while ago." And I started crying, and I quickly realized that the crying was guilt. Right? I, I, like I was so ridden with guilt. Like what a horrible daughter I am. You know how like my whole family's dying and I'm out and here I am in prison, right? So she grabbed my hand and she held it real tight. And she said, look at me. And I looked at her with tears in my eyes and she said, Bianca, I want you to take comfort that your father died peacefully with all his loved ones around him. Please take comfort in that. And I said, okay, you know, I went back to my cell and I replayed that over and over again, right? In my head, because it was traumatizing. And I kept hearing her say that. And it occurred to me that I won't have that privilege. If I don't change my life, I won't have that privilege. I'm going to die in an alley alone from a gunshot wound or a drug overdose. And I'm going to be alone. And worse yet, like, of course, they'll know my name because they can fingerprint me but would they know who I belong to? And I said, all these things are going through my head. And I'm thinking, okay, and even if they found out who I belong to, would my family actually come and get me? Or would they say, we're not putting her children through that again, 16, 17 years later where she's already been dead to us all this time. So I just said, I thought I'll make a deal. You know, God, I'll make, and this was my prayer with tears coming out of my eyes. God, I will make a deal with you. If you will take the taste of the streets and the heroin from my mouth until my last dying breath, I will help people. And that's the only thing I said. So that one sentence I kept hearing over and over from the counselor. And I thought, I have to make that happen for myself. I can't die without my family estranged from them and in an alley alone, right? And I was kind of like trying to keep a promise to God, and maybe he could help me. I don't know. you know. So I often say, after I did change my life, in my father's death, he gave me life. And also, now that I've been sober and clean on May 8th will be 11 years, I am a community leader, anti-violence activist, and productive law-abiding citizen. I laugh at myself because I won't even park Three inches over a yellow line when I'm parking. If it's, you know, I'm like, oh God, I'm breaking the law. And I I have to laugh at myself like the, the major criminal I used to be, right? And I'm like, oh my God, you're such a geek. But anyway, you know, I feel that when I look back on that, I think to myself, you know, I should have been dead a million times. I know nothing, right? So I threw my hands in the air and blindly just followed the program, right? And door after door started opening.
2: So you keep that promise to God in yourself, and when you're released, you go to Safe Haven, you're 50 years old, literally starting from nothing, right? Thirty-six years of addiction you're coming off of.: Correct. What happens at Safe Haven when you get there, and what is how does the chapter unfold from there?
1: So A Safe Haven is a program with wraparound services. So they don't only like they take people on parole, but they also take like, you know, homeless people or like a whole array. It's a wonderful, wonderful program. And I always say I credit them for saving my life. And I I know I did the work, but they put me on the right track. Right. And so when I was there, you know, in the beginning, I was a little reluctant, you know, because I wasn't used to rules or, you know, but hey, I had the same bed and, you know, I mean, I had two roommates and, you know, I mean, it, w- it was okay, but there were like little rules. And I was like, wait, what are you saying? You're t- you're speaking Greek. But a month went by and I'm like, oh, I'm free and I'm not high. Okay, cool. Right. And then a little more time goes by and I started noticing people looking at me with respect. And I had not had that in my life, right? I ended up staying there eight months and they never asked for a dime in an effort to keep my promise to God. If Safe Haven would send me on the bus to go wherever they were sending me to go, you know, a community center or, or, you know, an AA meeting or something. And if I would see a crowd of young people on the corner, I would purposely get off the bus and go talk to them.
2: And I read that, and you're about to talk about your work there, but the manager who eventually hired you,
1: J.W. Hughes,
2: J.W. Hughes said you were the biggest risk, one of the biggest risks he ever took in taking a chance on you and that it was the best hiring decision of his career.
1: Yeah. So he asked me if I ever heard of Ceasefire and he said, um, first of all, when he saw me and got out of the car, he said he had been seeing me randomly throughout that month on different corners. Talking, he asked me to walk away with them. And, and all the guys knew him. They were like, "Hey, they call him J Dub. Hey, J Dub. You know, this really wonderful man." And um, he was like, "I don't know how to say this, um, and I don't mean any harm. So I'm just going to say it right out. Do you know those kids?" And I'd say, well, I do now. I didn't an hour ago. And like, what are you saying to them? I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm like in a joking light way. I'm letting them know the ugly side up. I'm letting them know I used to be you. And he's like, well, do, do you know they're in gangs? And I'm like, yeah. Do you know that they probably have a gun? Yeah, I, I know that. And uh, and drugs? And I'm like, absolutely. And he's like, so I, again, I don't mean any harm but never in my life have I seen an older white woman on a corner in the hood talking to high-risk, at risk youth and you know, high-risk young adults involved in gang violence, right? And so effortless and like they seem to like you. And I when I drive by, you guys are all laughing. And, you know, he's like, I need a violence interrupter. And I was like, Okay. He's like, Do you need a job? And I was like, I do. And um he said, um, it pays $15 an hour. Now that's like, I was like, Oh my God, that's like, like I'm going to be a millionaire. Right. So, um, I said, well, I don't know what a violence interrupter is, but count me in. You know, he's like, well, that what you're doing right now is that role, you know, talking with youth and trying to mediate conflicts, but you'll be trained. And I said, okay. I still had to interview for the position. So on the day of the interview, Safe Haven sent me to a place where they're connected to get like, for free clothing, like a suit for an interview. So I was so excited that I went and got, you know, I went and got I got a secondhand suit and somebody lent me some heels and I, I got my nails done and my hair is one of the other girls flat-ironed my hair. And I mean I mean I was like ecstatic, right? So when I got, you have to be in front of a panel. So there's like six people, and obviously JW Hughes was there, and every single person voted no for me. And so because it was like She's just, she's still on parole. She lives in a homeless shelter. She's too newly out of prison. She was a heroin addict. She's too old. She's too white. How could she work with, you know, communities that are black and brown? And like they're they're kind of not even understanding that those are the communities I lived in my whole adult life, right? So at one point one of the men uh, in the panel said, Um, you know, Miss Bianca, maybe you'd be better in a an executive assistant downtown in the Gold Coast or something. And then it was done. I walked out. And then J.W. Hughes told me later that he said to them, okay, I know you're all voting no. They all voted no. And he said, but ultimately the decision is up to me. And I see something in this girl. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to hire her. If it goes bad, it falls in my lap and it never went bad. So yeah, he says, "I, I remain the best hire in his career. And he's been a, you know." In, in leadership for many, many, many years. And he s- still says that.
2: It's amazing. So, and
1: I'm great. I'm really grateful to him. I'm so grateful to him because then from there, I learned more skills and got more opportunities. And I mean, it just snowballed after that, you know, and I found my passion and I found that there's nothing that I love more than to be in the community talking with at-risk Youth. I go into prisons. I go into schools. If a mother calls me, I come. Sometimes young people call me for help. It doesn't matter. You know, that's my passion. And I have dedicated my life to helping at risk youth and um, young adults and um, make better choices. And we can't save everybody, sadly. But I know that I've saved lives. And I know that I will continue to do this until I die. So, I started putting every single paycheck in the bank in a savings account until I had enough to get my own studio apartment and um I got I, I moved out and I was kind of scared. I was like, well, let me I, they were like, don't you have an apartment? And I'm like, yeah, I've already had one for a month. And they Safe Haven would say, why are you still living in the homeless shelter? And I'm like, well, I'm in another couple of weeks because I, I, I have to get a coffee maker. And I was making all these excuses, but the reality was I'd never lived alone before. I always had like in prison or flophouses or people around me. So I was kind of like scared, right? So then finally, Safe Haven was like, here, we're going to help you. How about that? So pack up what you have in your room, everything you've collected and you know, whatever, in eight months. And we're going to use one of our vans and we're going to take you, we're going to have our guys that drive the vans, take you to your apartment. And one counselor said, I have a coffee maker I'm going to give you and a cup and some cream and coffee. And I was like, oh my God, I was scared. So anyway, I get to my apartment at my studio and um, there's nothing in it, absolutely nothing except for some few boxes, whatever you could fit in in a little small room that you share with three people in a homeless shelter. So I slid down the wall I was like, I stood standing against the wall in my own, my very own studio, the first time I ever paid for myself, security, rent, everything, and slid down. to i sitting and I just started crying. I just started crying because I couldn't believe I did it. You know, I might have not been a good mother, right? But I'm a really good grandmother, let me tell you.
2: I know last year you graduated in 2020 with a Bachelor of Arts in Inner City Studies. Yeah. So first of all, congratulations on your degree. (laughs) Oh, thank you.
1: I just wanted to start something and finish something, you know, and I'm uh, so proud of it. I was so proud, like, to wear a cap and gown. You know, I've never had one on before. That was quite the accomplishment for me.
2: And you're at the University of Illinois. And one of the things in your work now with law enforcement and really understanding this population that you now serve to break the cycle and prevent people from having the 36 years that you did. As you shared with me this idea of the invisible population, which really stuck with me, and and I want you to share that with our listeners. So I
1: I say the invisible population because I once belonged to the invisible population. That's the population that nobody wants to see. And even if there's a lot of good people out there that want to help people have, you know, a better life or whatever, they are helpless and powerless because they don't really know how. How do, how do I help, right? So um the invisible population is like it's not just homeless people. It's Anything that people don't want to deal with, right? So I make it a point because I used to be a member of that population and now I'm not anymore. I like to send the voice to the voiceless, like when I'm at a red light and there's a homeless person. You know, I might not have any money to give them, and I'm not telling people to give homeless people money. I like to give socks to them because I know that I remember myself being like, I would love a pair of brand new you know, white tube socks to keep my feet warm. But if I don't have anything at all to give them, I at least wave, smile. I want them to know that someone sees them. So I could say, hey, God bless you. And, you know, whatever, or hi, you know, sorry, I don't have any money, but take care, be safe, you know, and they're like, oh, thank you. And believe me when I tell you, the invisible population remembers that, whether it's later that day, and they'll be like, wow, that was a nice lady. She didn't have anything to give me, but she gave me a smile and told me to be safe and take care of myself.
2: That's incredible. Thank you. And I know that that'll resonate with people and hopefully translate into action. So we just said you you recently graduated with a bachelor's. You have a successful career that is your life's work and passion, and you are drug-free and sober. What keeps you drug-free and sober? What are the things that help you and keep you on this path every day?
1: Well, first of all, my behavior has changed. As I said earlier, I no longer think the way I once thought, so I no longer behave the way I once behaved. But the most important thing that keeps me sober and productive is... I filled that void with helping others, and I really, really, really like doing that. I really, really love to see a success story. So um, I think my passion has completely given me purpose, which has filled the void, and that is why I say I searched my whole life for something that was in front of me all along.
2: Bianca, what do you want people to learn, to feel when they hear you share your story?
1: So I want people to know that no matter how grim things look, and we all know someone, everyone knows someone or their family member or cousin or their neighbor that is involved in some kind of a a behavior that's heartbreaking for a family or, you know, whatever, I want people to know that there's always hope. Never give up on anyone because you never know the potential that someone has. And I feel that my story, the main reason for me sharing, and it's so brutally honest that especially women have come up to me that I don't know and said, Oh my God, you know, I got to take my hat off to you. For being brutally honest, I could have never admitted the things that you admitted in your book. And I always tell them I had to tell the whole story. I could not tell half of a story and expect to help somebody. But if you can put a word of hope into somebody, that means the world to them. It really does. Because we've lost all hope. We have none. So hope and believing in others and knowing that change is possible and I am proof positive of that.
2: Well, that is all beautiful, and thank you for showing up and telling your story with such honesty and heart and intention. I am really grateful.
1: Uh, it's, it's really an honor. I'm very honored that you are having me on your show. I think the work that you guys are doing is amazing, and bringing real-life stories to inspire others is critical for the world to hear. Keep Keep sharing people's stories, Kimmy, because um, you're making a difference.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for that. We'll end with something that is light and fun called lightning round. So I'm just going to fire off something quickly and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. And I'm going to add one based on what I've learned about you in this interview. (laughs) Okay. The first thing you do when you wake up. Push my coffee maker on.
1: Biggest pet peeve when somebody squeezes a tube of toothpaste in the middle and leaves it like that.
2: Favorite song, Beva
1: O'Reilly, The Who.
2: Most treasured possession, my
1: rock and roll albums, my pristine collection that Aunt Louise and Uncle Joey saved for me since I've been buying albums since the sixties.
2: What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a cheese Danish mm. and coffee. Oh, and Fruit. Favorite book? I
1: think my favorite book is by Vera Ramon King. It's called Poison Heart. I believe that's one of my favorites. A memoir.
2: The best piece of advice you have ever been given? To learn
1: data. I was working you know at the University of Illinois, and um I was okay with the computer, but I had to learn. So uh, uh, one of the directors said to me, Bianca learn data. Like, in other words, like, you know, cause now I'm a, da- I collect data. So like learn data, databases, database sets, learn it like the back of your hand. And I did. And by me knowing that skill makes me a very valuable person in the arena of running studies. And, you know, so yeah, that's the best advice I've ever gotten from Frank Praz, told me learn data like it's nobody's business.
2: All right, Bianca, thank you for your time. And as I said, your honesty and your heart and the work you are doing today. In the show notes, we will link to your website and to your book so people can learn more about you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you again and enjoy a beautiful weekend in Chicago
1: yeah and and you're in California, so you're even in a more beautiful place because you have the ocean. so but um thank you so much for having me. It's been truly my honor. and I hope this um, reaches a lot of people and gets people thinking in a different way.
2: Changing the narrative sometimes, right? I know it will. So thank you again for everything, and I can't wait to share this with our listeners.
1: Uh, okay. Thank you so much, Kimmy, and stay in touch with me, okay? Okay, I will. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by All the Happier. All the Happier is a new digital online course rooted in the power of science and human story. You can learn more about the class or sign up for our newsletter by going to allthehappier.com. Today's interview with Bianca supports Acclivus. They are a community health organization focusing on the health and well being of people living in Chicago's most vulnerable neighborhoods. They provide individuals with the opportunity to reach their full human potential, regardless of their past misdeeds, disappointments, or challenges. To learn more about the charities we support, and know the day every new episode comes out, you can sign up for our newsletter at allthewiserpodcast.com. If you liked today's episode, I would be honored if you would make the time to leave us a review. It goes a long way in helping other people discover the podcast. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Girard at PodKit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.
0: Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card.